Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In the mid-month show, we have the last of the film news until the worldwide pause stops. Then to our big interview, writer and director Mark Yobbs, talking about his work on The Witcher and other big-scale projects. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Hi, my name is Neil, and I just like films. So welcome, everybody, to a special show. It might be lockdown, however, we are still spending the time to get the shows out for our listeners. And as an added bonus, we don't even have to be in the same room. <laughs> this month, we have a real coup for you, our interview with the great Mark Yopst. But before that, I've got a public service announcement. 5G does not spread coronavirus, and burning down mobile phone masks is a dick move at a time when communication between everyone is very important. If Don't sit on the, the fence, Jeff. I'll try not to. If you feel the need to return to the dark ages, go meet up with your flat earth of pals and leave the rational part of society alone. There ends the public service notice. Anyway, as we record this show, it is week four of lockdown. And I can't help but think of the things I am missing. You're not on that list, Neil, but I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, for a movie fan, <laughs> cinema is top of the list. That big screen experience in the dark is something you just cannot replicate at home, regardless of the size of your TV. It is the dream factory, and when it works, thankfully more often than not, the experience can be thought-provoking and, at special moments, life-changing. Even audiences, and I think all three of us have our horror stories there, can yep. be a magical encounter. The right audience for the right film enhances the experience. Horror and comedy are where group viewings work best. You'd know one out of two of those, Neil. However, <laughs> even in a film like Bad Times at the El Royale or Pulp Fiction, they have that moment that is so sudden, so surprising, that there is a collective sigh or jump from the audience. Yes, I miss the cinema and can't wait for it to return, even in what I expect it to be a new social distancing form. Lads, what do you say? Well, getting out of the house is a definite. <laughs> Walking into town, choosing a film, booking my ticket as I go up the escalator. Habits like that can be healthy too. Uh, Neil, rained... Neil so sorry, mate. You need to book your tickets before you go up the escalator. <laughs> no, you've got to choose the film first and then book the tickets as you're going up the escalator. Do you? I use the machines at the bottom. Use on the phone. Oh, you online? Oh, right. No, I'm not up to that. <sighs> Ticket online. Okay. Jesus wept. <laughs> there you go. That for people who really don't understand technology. Me. Me. Having rained for five months, sunny, rain-free weather is a joke too far. Is it only week four of isolation? I did not realise that April had 900 days. <laughs> I'm marooned in my house watching classic isolation movies, Papillon, Castaway and Robinson Crusoe, looking for inspiration. <laughs> I've started playing World of Warcraft just to virtually get out of the house and into Azeroth. I really miss the movie-going experience, the joy of entering that dark world. Oh, the marvel 
of it, the infinity <laughs> oh, of new experiences, the vision and the wonder of it all. To be far from home, but Doctor Strangely at peace. I hope there still is a cinema to go to when this is all over and this is not just an end game. Thank you for frightening me there, Graham. I just want to pick up on a couple of points of that. You should be watching films like Contagion or oh. I Am Legend. They will really cheer you up. Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and, and, and Neil, those at all when gone. this is over, it will start to rain again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah. I know. Okay, lads, time for the suits as we read out the film news for the last time in a while. On second thoughts, lads, no need for the suits, as we can't see each other, and this is very much an end-of-term column. Time, perhaps, to put the suits in for those long-overdue dry cleans? Well, that is, if you can find one that's open. Seems like they just don't want us to get fresh and clean. Well, you'll be all right then, Neil. Anyway, (laughs) back to the film news. We do have one great piece of news, and Graham has found a new favourite action star while on lockdown. Gibson off, Jeff. Is that any way to talk to a mate who looks out for you? (laughs) No. (laughs) Don't worry, we won't start with you. You can share your new pleasures with the audience shortly. Neil, over to you first. Thanks, Jeff. Last year, the Atmaflix team gave a big shout-out for the wonderful British comedy Fisherman's Friends. We also had an interview with the film's composer, Rupert Christie, in one of our most downloaded shows, number 43. Great show, Neil. And I remember that amazing sandwich shop Rupert took us to. Well, yeah, and Jeff paid. Well, that's, oh, how, yes. you, that's how unique the experience was. <laughs> I still well, got the receipt. <laughs> well, now we learn that there's to be a sequel called, obviously, Fisherman's Friends 2, this one bound for Australia. Word first came out about a sequel last year. However, it was only a couple of weeks before the lockdown that the Fisherman's Friends singers themselves confirmed the film had been greenlit. Have a listen to them announce the film. But, uh, just to say on the subject of the film, we're very excited tonight to find out that uh, there is going to be a sequel filmed down in Cornwall in... Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it takes the story of where the group was when uh, we went and sang at uh, Glastonbury on the Pyramid stage. Uh, and we were very lucky because Beyonce was our support act yes. on the day, which was great. <laughs> No wonder all their performances sell out. Very funny. Are all the cast returning? My understanding is that the best three, Daniel Mays, Tuppence Middleton and James Porfoy, are returning. Outside of that, I'm not sure. As for plot, the film starts, as per the clip, at Glastonbury, then goes on to deal with the struggles of putting together a second album. Things come near to breaking point during a tour of southern Australia. It is at that pivotal point they uncover a strange truth that gives them new inspiration. Sounds like they've broadened out the scope of the original, which should be interesting. Yeah, agreed. That plot is certainly not a repeat of the first. When does it start filming? Hopefully this summer in Cornwall before a trip to Australia. 
However, the pandemic may mean a delay to the start of filming and potentially to the planned March 2021 release date. We will continue watching the progress of this eagerly awaited film and keep you posted. Thanks very much, Neil. Looking forward to that already. Graham, I believe you found a new friend. (laughs) Jeff, go Gibson yourself. This next section comes with the usual disclaimer. This section of the show is the rantings of a madman, or as we all know him, Jeff. The opinions expressed in this section are purely fictional and bear no relationship to reality. All the characters mentioned here are either fictional, delusional, or can't act for toffee. That is so harsh. This (laughs) month, Jeff has me talking about action star Vin Diesel, or as I like to think of him, Bin Weasel. The coronavirus has robbed us of many things. Liberty, bars, cinema, and Vin Diesel's latest masterwork, says Jeff. This is, of course, Fast and Furious 9. Us fans, those like me, who have obsessively watched all the Fast and Furious films during lockdown. No, we haven't. Know this by another name, F9, or as I like to think of it, FFS9, it is only through watching them in close succession that you realise the true artistry and visual poetry involved in putting these action classics together. God, yes. <laughs> I was right in Chalooney hours of the morning, that, those lines. Sleep deprived, mate. And at the centre of it all, the head shaved action star, the mighty power that is Vin Diesel. <laughs> Well, you really are a fan, Graham. Oh, yeah, you think? (laughs) He is an absolute legend, Neil. In his own lunchtime, maybe. (laughs) At least that's what Jeff's written here. Or his own mind. Exactly. I was wondering how they did talk the excitement of my film of the year 2018. That's not how I remember 2018. (laughs) Fast and Furious 8. The trailer for 9 seems to suggest that it would. Who knew Dom had another family member we had never heard about until now? Master criminal Jacob Toretto. John Cena. Oh, another great actor added to the mix. (laughs) Neil, hang on a minute, because that could be another profile that Graham would want to cover. Oh, Oh, yes, of course. Yes, he's been terrible in everything. So obviously Graham will love him. Yes, (laughs) I think he's wonderful. Oh, yes. Okay. So he teams (laughs) up with arch-villain Cypher, Charlize Theron. What is she doing in these films? I don't know. She needs another agent. (laughs) She certainly does. To destroy Dom and his family. You know, the way you put it, Graham, makes it sound even more exciting than I possibly thought it would be. (laughs) Sounds contrived, Jeff, if you ask me. To add to that excitement, the trailer reveals Han, Sung Khan, is very much alive and not killed by Jason Statham back in F6. How exciting is that? Maybe, (laughs) Jeff, I could have Jason Statham as my next action star if Steven Seagal is not available. Or maybe you could just stick pins in me. The trailer for F9 promised much, and in a perfect world, I would have booked my seats for every evening performance for the first week. But no, thanks to coronavirus, now I have to wait until May next year to watch this All Thrills Masterclass. 
Jeff, where are you getting these from? And if that's not bad enough, it means that there will now be a delay in filming the final Fast and Furious, which will now not make it to the screen until at least 2022. Shocking and soul-destroying, writes Jeff. At least you have all the classic toy cars from the movies. Collectibles, Neil. Go on, make fun of this fan's pain. The Vin is sadly missing from our screen for another year. Or to give him his birth name, Mark Sinclair. Seriously? Yes, he added Vincent to the end of his name in honour of his adoptive father. And he was nicknamed Diesel in his teens because he was always full of energy, becoming Vin Diesel. You truly are a Vin Jedi master, Graham. Does he have any other movies coming up? Oh, yes, Jeff writes here. One thing you can say about <laughs> Vin is that he never lets go of a franchise, even if it has been flogged to death. He has been filming Avatar 2, although what the plot is and what his part in it is, we don't know. All details are under wraps for the time being. At the moment, Avatar 2 is scheduled for release in December 2021. But as you know, James Cameron only needs a slight excuse to move it back another couple of years. I suspect he might have a COVID excuse this time around. Also in the cast of Avatar 2 is Zoe Saldana, who stars with Vin in those Marvel efforts, Guardians of the Galaxy. They are currently preparing to film Guardians of the Galaxy 3, but when that starts shooting and when it is due to be released is anyone's guess at the moment. That said, Vin could always phone in his performance. It's not as if we don't know what he's going to say in his animated role as Groot, or as Jeff likes to call him, Grout. If you are worried about the technology, Vin, don't worry. I have just the system for you to record your lines perfectly, and it has worked for us during lockdown. Anything I can do, mate, to help. And if it gets me a part in the final Fast and Furious film, I'm there. God. You know how to debase yourself, Graham, before the altar of Finn. <laughs> Does he have any other films planned? Please say yes. <laughs> Anything else planned? This is Vin Diesel. He still has that teenage energy. A couple of years ago, Vin and writer-director David Toey announced they were preparing a script for the further adventures of Riddick, tentatively called The Chronicles of Riddick Furya. Is that the character Charlie's Tehran played in Mad Max Fury Road? <laughs> no, it's the planet that Riddick originally comes from. Richard B. Riddick is the last of his kind, oh please. A visionary, almost Christ-like figure. Christ -like. <laughs> is that how you see him, Graham? <laughs> well, that's what I always say when I see him in a film. Oh, Christ, he's back again. Jeff, this is one of the ultimate sci-fi action series. I'm surprised you're not up to speed on this. I clearly don't have your knowledge or insights on the collective works of the VIN. I will admit, and I will learn from you, Graham. <laughs> Back to Furia. The script was completed last year, and the original intention was to film later this year. Again, because of the pandemic, filming has been on hold, so it may be a few years before the character returns. COVID-19 seems to have a grudge against Finn. It does, Neil. And as a result, entertainment, which might restore hope to a depressed world population, is being <laughs> The Vin, as Jeff continues to call him, The Vin, could be our phoned-in saviour in these troubled times. I could weep with the tragedy of this. 
over humanity. <laughs> so, oh, I'm, I'm actually moved to tears. So that's <laughs> it then, Graham. Won't, won't somebody think of the children? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, definitely moved to tears. So that's it then, Graham. Vin is now in rest mode because of the pandemic. Is he the heck? <laughs> the Vin just sit there and watch the world go by? Never. He wants to bring his word to the people. As a result, he is spending the lockdown time writing a sequel to the fantasy action movie, The Last Winch Hunter. Oh, good grief. From a couple of years ago, not far enough away. I will leave the last words to Vin, the oracle who said, are we ready for this? As an artist, the more experienced I get, the more I am appreciating just the fact that my work somehow finds you and that you get to experience it at your own time and at your own pace. And I'm less concerned. And maybe it's because of the accolades. Maybe it's because I'm part of the Avengers. They're not real. Or I'm part of Disney. I'm a part of the Guardians and I'm a part of Fast. And I've had so much of that wonderful experience that I think the higher thinking becomes when people tell me they love the Witch Hunter and they just want to see me and Michael Caine go into another one. I go Wow. <laughs> Honestly, you could you could wade through his sincerity and not get your ankles <laughs> If you need a Vin fix, then check out Bloodshot. Oh, please don't. Watch it slowly, one frame at a time, as that has to last you over a year to the next Vin Diesel classic. Oh, thank God. Back to you, Jeff. Well, thank you, Graham. That was very moving. <laughs> and there's no, <laughs> there's no way I can top that stunning piece of film news, simply because, well, there is no more film news. Up your vending. <laughs> <laughs> See, you love these people so much, they turn their names into insults. Oh, um, God. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Bringing it down, back down to a normal level now after that stratosphere with a Christ-like figure. I just want to bring some recent soundtrack releases from classic movies to your attention. These come from companies which go to terrific lengths to bring out film soundtracks for the collector. I want to highlight one from each. First up is one from the longest-running soundtrack company, Veray Saraband. They've been in operation for over 40 years. Oh, Jeff, if you're a Spotify subscriber, Veray Saraband have an album of 40 years of movie soundtracks. And you can find it on Spotify, where you can also find in their podcast section at the Flex Plug Plug. Oh, excellent. And I believe in that Veray, there's some of the music they've got for the Fast and Furious films, which is why you know so much about this. (laughs) Thank you. Mm, We just have to teach you how to use Spotify. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah, do you have to put those discs in? Because I can understand that. Yes, you that. do. That's okay. the one. Good. Recently in a club release, Veray Saraband brought out Bill Conti's wonderfully quirky score to the 1978 film The Big Fix. Music is by Bill Conti of Rocky fame, and it stars Richard Dreyfus as Private Eye Moses Gunn, the only one of Moses Gunn's books to be filmed so far. Anyway, okay. check this snippet of the music out.
Well, it certainly isn't rocky. Very true, Neil. Unfortunately, Conti had such a success with Rocky that it impacted on his whole career. When films like this and Slow Dance in the Big City flopped, his range unfortunately became very restricted. Anyway, moving on. And next up is the wonderful La La Land Records and their restoration of one of my favourite John Williams soundtracks, Far and Away. Just to hear Tom Cruise in that Irish accent, I bet you must have loved that one, Graham. Oh, um, good grief. Anyway, you read my mind. That's really worrying. I went, isn't that the one where Tom Cruise does that awful Irish accent? Yeah. Yep, yep. I, I expect you're thinking Vin could have, the Vin could have done it better. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, let's hear t- uh, Tim Burden, the creative consultant on this project of Far and Away, explain it. Over to Tim. You can hear this fantastic score by John Williams, courtesy of La La Land Records and Universal Special Projects, produced beautifully as always by Mike Mattesino, art direction by Jim Titus. It's a fantastic score. The Chieftains feature prominently, Paddy Maloli and his tin whistle, and of course his band as well, giving it that Irish lift. But essentially it's cues like the land race. I will say that the Land Race track from Far and Away is my favourite piece of John Williams music. And finally, to my favourite soundtrack company, Interada. They recently brought out the score for the wonderful fantasy film, Time Bandits. Remember that, guys? That's when Python got it right. Uh, Have a listen to this. So, as you can see, the film world may be on pause for the moment, but thankfully the world of film music, like Vin, continues on. More next time. Let's move on to our big event of the month. Before lockdown happened, we were very fortunate to catch up with director Mark Yobst to talk about his career. After starting as a theatre writer and actor, Mark switched to directing for the BBC. From there, America called and Mark's vision can be seen in key episodes of such shows as Hannibal, Black Sails and Tin Star. After that, he became involved with Netflix's Marvel shows, Daredevil and The Punisher, before moving on to the mega success that is The Witcher 
we will go over to Jeff to talk to Mark about his career in much more detail. Today, your At The Flicks team are in Stroud. Here we are honoured to be talking to film and TV director Mark Jobst. Mark has had a fascinating career so far, starting as an actor, and then moving to directing with the BBC on some of their flagship shows before working for Netflix on hits including Daredevil and The Punisher. And then last Christmas, being part of the worldwide blockbuster hit series, The Witcher. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. You must be exhausted after all of that. (laughs) (laughs) There's a few rests in between. (laughs) Now, I'm also really keen during the course of our conversation to chat about your new project, Home. But before we talk about that, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions about The Witcher? Um, Because some of our listeners are sent in and really keen on knowing a few things about it. What pleases you most about the huge global success of The Witcher? I think... It means that people are coming to the show that are not just Witcher fans. And that's as I came to it. Uh, I'm not a Witcher game player. I don't particularly know the books. I read some of them, obviously, before I came on to direct it. But I came to it kind of not really knowing anything about it because I'm just interested in story and character, and I really loved the story of it. And it felt to me that if we could tell that story well then we could bring a whole load of people to the Witcher story that weren't necessarily already involved in the games or or the books. You know, there's a fantasy, which I suppose the Witcher is, has a bit of a bad press, really. And it's a pity because fantasy, when it's done well, is really exciting. And so the global, huge, phenomenal success of the Witcher means that a lot of people who are coming to this now are coming to fantasy maybe for the first time and hopefully seeing something that they can really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know anything about The the Witcher until I heard it was filming. Graham, on the other hand, is a big fan of it and it worked for both of us on different yeah, levels. Great. So yeah, it was really it good. It's a huge task to create a world yeah. on television, on screen. It's a, it's a massive task. And there were... F- complicated structural issues that had to be resolved in series one, partly because it takes place over such an enormous time scale. You know, some of these characters are kind of hundreds of years old. And how do you make those storylines work um, so that you can bring Geralt and Ciri together legitimately? And I think some of those structural issues were concerns for some of the viewers. They got confused. But I certainly know that in season two, now we've done that, now we've got the two of them together. Season two can be much more linear uh, and hopefully we won't have lost any audience uh, as a result of it. But yeah, I mean, you know, you know, creating a whole new world on screen is a big task. Yeah, and it's interesting what you're saying about the time lapses because by the time we get to episode four, and I won't reveal anything on this yeah. for anybody listening to the show, I was completely dumbfounded by the way it had been twisted on me and I was looking at it in one way and then all of a sudden everything falls into place and it's something completely different to what I've been watching. And that's great that you say that because, you know, you know, so much television in particular, I think spoon feeds an audience. Yeah. yeah. And I come from theatre and in theatre you only have a wide shot. That's all you have. You have a stage, you have all your characters and it's just a wide shot. And for an audience to get anything out of going to the theatre, they have to work. They have to suspend their disbelief and they have to engage with, you know, what is just basically a wide shot. Now, the danger with television, storytelling in television and film, is that because it's such a realistic 
medium. In other words, if you are saying this is the Niagara Falls, you have to go to a waterfall somewhere and shoot the Niagara Falls or whatever it is. On the stage, if you do it well, you can get a watering can. You can pour water out of the watering <laughs> can and say, this yeah. is the Niagara Falls, and they'll believe it. Yeah. Now, that's getting the audience to work and to engage in the story. How do we do that in film and television? How do we get an audience to engage and actively participate rather than just sit back and be passive viewers? That's what interests me because I think an audience, A, gets more out of a show if they are engaged and participating in it, but B, stay with the show yeah, if they're engaged with it. And if an audience has to work a little bit harder to understand the timelines, I don't think that's a bad thing. I agree. And it was like when I watched Westworld on TV because... Another great example, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you're piecing it all together and then all of a sudden you realise these aren't all at the same time. There's big differences here and that's really good. And I think, you know, on on this whole thing with Netflix and with Amazon Prime and HBO at the moment, we're in a golden age of TV Mm. because Mm. before that we had Reset TV. Mm. You take a 70s show like a Y-E-5-0, you could watch any episode, mm. any order. You couldn't do that with Witcher. You have to watch it as it was made. Well, that's right. And, and also, interestingly enough, you know, writers are beginning to write for that. When I first starting, started working for Netflix, I remember having dinner with them and them saying to us, don't think of this as episodic TV. Think of this as chapters within a, a book. Good point, yeah. And that's fundamentally different to how you tell a story. You know, in the traditional British model of the BBC or whatever, you you have a cliffhanger at every at the end of every episode, mm-hmm. and that's what the audience hooks into, and that's what will lead them into coming back the following week. If you are writing for a binge watching audience, in other words, you think they're going to do at least two, possibly four, you don't have to have that hook. It means that you can have one episode as a chapter. And then you can lead on to the next episode, which is a different chapter, maybe even unrelated. And then you can come back to the storyline much later on. So, for example, I did Hannibal uh, for NBC with Mads Mikkelsen and Lawrence Fishburne. And the showrunner on that is a guy called Brian Fuller, brilliant genius of a man. And his muscularity of storytelling was phenomenal and something that I felt I really wanted to learn, having done so much BBC work. So, for example, I don't know if anybody of your listeners know Hannibal, but if you if you if you don't, I really recommend. There's it. a lot of Mads fans out there. I'll oh, tell it's, you. A, yeah. it's a seriously good piece of work. At the end of season two, there was this operatic finale where Hannibal had sort of slaughtered everybody in the cast list, and it ended with kind of blood and mayhem. End of season two, beginning of season three. It just starts with him in Italy. And the first three episodes, there's no mention whatsoever of what happened at the end of season two. Then I come in and do episode four, and it's like, ah, do you remember what happened at the end of season two? Mm. Here's what happened next. And that's episode four of the brand new season. Now, that is really muscular storytelling because it's trusting the audience to say, I'm not going to give you everything immediately all at once. I'm going to make you work a little bit. And I think you get much more out of it. So that muscular storytelling, which allows you to throw something out. I, had it on, I did a show called Hemlock Grove, which was the first Netflix show I did, which was a sort of vampire and werewolf type thing. It didn't really work. Eli Roth uh, was the showrunner on it. 
it's a shame it didn't really work. Bill Skarsgård um, was in it, was, you know, who's the the um, the clown in it. But I remember on one of the lead characters on that who 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 was accused of murdering somebody, and I said to the showrunner we had dinner, and I said, I'm worried that. You know, we're we're turning the audience against this guy, uh, one of our our lead guys, because he's being accused of murdering something, and I'm worried that we're going to lose the audience. And he he went quiet uh, at the table for a little bit, and then he said, mm, "Yeah, great, good, yeah, yeah, great. Let's do that. Let's lose the audience, and then five ep- <laughs> five episodes later, we'll Brilliant. come back to it and we'll say, huh, you thought he killed that person? Well, he didn't.'" <laughs> <laughs> and so you're immediately thinking, "Well, this is a different way of telling story." Yeah, yeah. Pull the Which rug. Is, yeah, yeah, pull the rug. And that's that becomes really exciting. You and can't so, do that every week, can you? In, you in can't do that every episode week. a week. It just yeah. does not no. work. No. no, and what it's doing is it's saying to to, to writers, challenging writers mm-hmm. and storytellers to to write and tell stories in a different way. And yeah. I think that's really exciting. Wow, you couldn't do that in a summer blockbuster. You you just hammer it, wouldn't you? And that's I mean, as a television or as a movie? No, as a movie. You yeah. know, if you if you were, you know, you, you've got this hero in in a franchise, yeah. and you do something really negative with yeah. that hero. I just don't see that working there. Whereas with TV, you, you've yes. got you've got more area to explore. Yes, that. it's a different kind of storytelling. You know, yeah. I mean, making a movie is a breath. Yeah, it's a it's a it, you, you it's a it's a you breathe in and you. Whew, you tell your story and it's just a one breath, you know, and that's the joy of it. You can yeah. follow the story all the way through from beginning to middle to end. With TV at the moment, the way it is over eight, nine, ten, sometimes 13 episodes as we used to do in the Marvel Studios uh, storytelling, it's much more than that. Yeah. It's but much more multi-layered. I know we're going off the point a bit, but yeah. I'm fascinated pursuing this. I understand what you're saying about film, but now summer films are franchise. Mm. So they're almost like episodic TVs. They come along once every two, three years, mega budgets, mm. but they are essentially episodes of, mm. uh, of a series. Do you think that's a good thing? No, I don't. I, I, I think it, it, it weakens it because unlike with shows like Witcher, for example, mm. you haven't got, you can't make those sort of creative mm. decisions. You've got a Fast and the Furious film mm. coming out again this year and they've introduced yet another character nobody ever heard of mm. is coming back into it. Yeah. And it's sort of limiting. You can't, in fact, they're bringing back another character who'd been killed. Mm. It's sort of just And do you think in. the audience see through that then? Some of them do. Some of them I, do. I don't, you know, I, it's interesting what you say about the breath, and it's interesting that the Star Wars, the last Star Wars, pretty much flopped. But the Mandalorian, not financially, went, not financially, but mm. for film fans, I think they most of us saw it flop. Mm. But the Mandalorian on on Disney Plus, because it's much longer telling of the story, mm. and because it's got ups and downs and moves and and mm. things happen that you don't expect. I think that's much more where a lot of these stories are going to go. I think television mm. at the minute is phenomenally powerful mm. storytelling. I, 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 I do too, and I think I'm less anxious about it really because I think what happens is it, it, it makes you really exercise yourself as to what it is that makes a cinema movie and what it is that makes a good television series. There's nothing like going to the movies. No. Mm. And so right. <laughs> no arguments there, from this group. <laughs> no. And sitting in a room where the lights go out and yep. you arrange with your mates to say, let's go and have a pint beforehand. Yeah. We'll go and watch the movie and then we'll have a bite to eat afterwards and have a good 
chat about the film. That's special, for not just because of the social side to it, but also because in buying a ticket, you're investing yourself in the storytelling. Yeah. And that, as a storyteller myself, as a director, is fundamentally important because it means I give myself to you as, a, as an audience because yeah. I've paid my money. And so I want to now, I feel very strongly as a director that I have a responsibility then to fulfill that expectation. There's nothing quite like that. But not everything should be a movie. No, no, no. And there are some ideas and some stories that are better off told on long form because you get you get more opportunity to explore character, you get more opportunity to multi-layer story. You know, there's so many different ways you can approach story through long form television that you can't in a single movie. It's an interesting point because you get something like The Irishman and The Irishman sort of falls between two camps oh, yeah. because it's an incredibly long story but it sits on Netflix. Well, and the interesting thing is I was at a dinner party the other day in LA and they were sort of saying to me, oh, but, you know, you just watch The Irishman like you watch a Netflix series. You don't sit through three and a half hours of it. You watch an hour of it and then you come back to it and you watch the next hour of it. Scorsese would like, you know, turn it. Oh, you wouldn't be happy. No, you wouldn't be happy <laughs> no. at all. No. Um, but that's the mentality, you know, and it's a really interesting kind of conversation that's going on about, you know, movies on Netflix and, you know, how you approach it. And, and you know, one of the things that I've appreciated and, you know, I'm on the, the Directors Guild of America and the BAFTA awards committees, you know, voting for, for some of these films. When you look at a lot of these films, hmm, I have to say how much I appreciate and love watching a really tight one-hour, 40-minute, one-hour, 45-minute movie. Yep. Yeah. It's really satisfying. We had this conversation the other day when I watched The Guilty, if you'd seen yeah. that film. It is just, it's can't be more than 90 minutes, that film. One bloke, it's less than 90 minutes. One yeah. bloke in a room, my wife and I watched it, and at one point my wife screamed. It was just like, what the... Oh, no. Right. I don't know that. Oh, it's, it's a yeah. Danish film. Danish so it's film. about um, a, a policeman who yeah. has been put on to taking 999 calls, oh. essentially. As the film progresses, you realise he's there. He's a really good policeman. Mm. And then you start to learn there, there might be other reasons why he's there. But then he takes a call, and I'll only go as far as the trailers go. <coughs> he takes a call from a woman who is being kidnapped in a car and she's talking to him like talking to a member of the family so he starts to twig this is a kidnapping and he starts to marshal the forces from within this room and it develops from there great it's on on Netflix it's on Netflix and it's it's one of those where you think this costs nothing and it's so close the camera is right in his Mm. face the whole time and he's just talking to people on the phone great yeah well, you know, great writing, great performance. You know, look at the marriage story, you know, fant- oh, yes. fantastic piece of work, beautifully written, brilliantly performed. You know, it's an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And Jojo Rabbit. That's Jojo smart. Rabbit, again, yeah. you know, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And back to Witcher. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, this is you, funnily you say, going for a social meeting with your mates and going to watch. That's how we started this podcast, because we always went to the cinema together. And Jeff said, when we were sat in the pub afterwards, it would be good if we could record this. Yeah. And it's so important because, you know, if I can just go off a slight tangent, which is that storytelling is important. You know, story, the the reason why I came into stories is because I love stories. Stories teach us how to be human. Fairy stories exist because 
and continue and will continue to exist because they teach us how to be human. You know, the prince who wants to marry the princess or wants to become the king. And first of all, he's got to slay the dragon. He's got to prove himself, you know, and the prince goes up to the dragon and he says, I'm going to fight you and kill you and win the princess or win the crown, the king's crown. But he looks at the dragon and the dragon's really scary so he thinks, actually, do you know, I'm fine being prince. I'll just go home. <laughs> yeah. I'll just go and sit yeah. I get a pretty good life as it is, you know. And then after a while of living the pretty good life, he thinks, actually, do you know, I'm bored with this, you know. I'd rather die trying yeah. than not try at all. And then, and this is really important, he has the fight of his life. Yeah. And it has to be life or death to fight the dragon. And you have to believe that this prince could die at the hands of the dragon and vice versa. And, of course, in the fairy story, in the fight of his life, he he, he kills the dragon, and in having the fight for his life, he has the right then to wear the crown and govern other people or to win the hand of the princess. And it could be the other way around, you know, it could be the princess. Uh, and that's a key part. You have to engage emotionally with it. Mm. And uh, I think, and we had an argument, we had a, well, we a did huge a argument, argument yes. of 1917. <laughs> I think 1917. Oh, I'd love to be a part of that. Oh, well, it's a very technical, technical film and brilliant. Deakins should walk that Oscar on, on, on Sunday. It's a great film, but I didn't engage emotionally. It mm. felt like watching a game, the way the camera panned around. Mm. It was like being inside a computer game. Now, I don't play games, mm. and trust me, these two and, and others have taken disagree. And we they disagree. Yeah. 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 So we had a big, big discussion. I'm with you, that. Jeff. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. 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 Just, <sighs> Yeah. It just hold didn't me in the work film. for me emotionally. And every time you come across a German, that German was evil. Regard, you know, the guy in the plane. They get him out of the plane, and suddenly he stabs the one guy and kills him. And you're thinking, there's never a German character in there that has any shades of grey. And quite apart from the fact for me that I felt like I was ticking off set pieces. Oh, here's the set piece where the plane comes and lands and crashes into the barn. And then we have the set piece where he goes over the waterfall and down into the water. Does that take me closer to the character? No, it's another set piece. Tick. But he was copying. So the the initial one through the trenches, that's Paths of Glory. That's what Kubrick did. You then got the whole business where the body's in the water. That's the killing fields. Chaos, and yeah. that, that sequence at the end of that, mm. when he's going over the battleground and the old bodies, that's Hacksaw Ridge. Mm. So it's all been done elsewhere. But mm. those films resonated emotionally. And this one, just for me, just didn't. Yeah. And as you're saying about <laughs> set pieces, <laughs> I, 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 I don't disagree. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid I, I, I really don't. You can go I, off I, people, but Mark. The things that, sorry, yeah, you're free to. That's the great thing about storytelling. Yeah. yeah, we feel passionate about it. And yes, exactly. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So oh, that was excellent. So back to the Witcher. He is going <laughs> to crow about that <laughs> for a year. Yeah, I want that piece taken out of this yeah, interview. That's I don't want that. Um, so, okay, a couple of listener questions on the Witcher. So Richard, we have to be particularly careful with Richard because he's the partner of my daughter. Uh, <laughs> so in preparing for the show. Did you and Henry spend any time playing the Witcher game? As a huge fan of the game myself, that's Richard, not me, I don't play him, I felt the character of Gerald, voice, accent and nuances were all perfect. How much effort did you put into preparing that? None at all. Okay. I, I, you go, Rich, I, you're I, all right. I, I, I don't play the game. Henry played the game? Uh, Henry plays the game a uh-huh. lot. Yeah, Henry uh-huh. plays the game a lot. He knew it. In fact, you know, you probably know the story, but he approached the showrunner and the producers 
when he heard that they were going to make a live-action version of it, he approached them to say he would like to be considered to play Geralt. And um, so they then flew over to New York to meet him, and he pitched himself. And they then went and saw a whole load of other people as well, because you need to make sure, and came back and said, yes, Henry's the right guy for it. He's an avid Witcher gamer. I'm not, and I feel like I come into it, therefore, you know, as an audience who doesn't know the show. And I say, okay, what am I interested in? I'm interested in who this guy is. He's an interesting guy, this character. Um, who is he? What is he? What does he do? Why does he do what he do- does? You know, why is he as silent and sullen? And why is he so grumpy all the time? And that interests me. He know? is very grumpy. He's very in the, grumpy. In the books, he's, yeah. he's even worse. Yeah. Is he? Yeah. He's very grumpy. Yeah, the well, there's nothing wrong with being grumpy. <laughs> it's just that when you're making a live-action drama with your grumpy character as being your lead, you need to sort of start to understand him and unpick it. And to go back to what we were saying beforehand to give the audience access to that character as being resonant to their own grumpiness. You know, mm. what makes us grumpy? How do we deal with being grumpy? Mm. How does he deal with it, grumpy? Does he have reason to be grumpy? Is he just... That was the question for me, is why is he so grumpy? Mm. And do we get that in season two or we get, we get I think the you get. I, I think you get some of it in the finale, don't you? Mm. Um, So he gets, uh, which is one of the episodes that I shot, he gets bitten by the ghouls and gets feverous. And in in this deliriousness, he flashes back to his childhood. And the little boy gets abandoned by his mum, gets taken to Kermorn and then becomes the witcher that he is and survives it. And in his deliriousness, or is he delirious? the big question mark in that scene by the tree where his mother comes to visit him. Is it his mother or is it him dreaming it? We left it deliberately ambiguous. I know there's been a lot of argument in in all the various fan pages about this, but I wanted to leave it ambiguous for him to say, you know, tell me at least that you knew what you were doing. So you have that. And again, I think some of the skillfulness in the storytelling is it's not telling you that that's why he is grumpy. Yeah. It's just giving you backstories to a child at that age who's been abandoned that could therefore give reason for somebody who feels the world is against him or not for him. I know that Henry worked very hard at creating that part. And I think you can see it. By the time I came on board into the series, we shot half of the pilot with him and then shot the finale. I think Henry had found him. Geralt, right. uh, as a live-action character. It's always difficult when you take a game or a cartoon uh, or a comic book like the Marvel Studios stuff or a, a show that I've just done called Jupiter's Legacy, which is a Mark Miller comic book series, and turn it into a live-action drama. You can't literally just pull it off the page and put it, stand it up because you have to give it a three-dimension. You have to give it a backstory, an emotional life, and an emotional truth, all those elements. Otherwise, it very quickly becomes tedious. And I think one of the things with Geralt, just to go back to what I was saying earlier on, at the risk of being repetitive, it's very difficult to build a world in live action. Because it's not just about, you know, what does it look like and Mm. what are the trees like and what's the landscape like and all that. It's about what are the characters like. Um, They have to be three-dimensional characters. You have to believe them as people who, if you met them in a pub, you would have a proper 
interaction with. Yeah. And so to discover that early on is, is, a, is a task. And I know that Henry worked incredibly hard to build Geralt as a three-dimensional character. And that ties in neatly with the other listener question on The Witcher from Declan, uh, talking about world building. There's a lot of CGI in Witcher. Did this have an impact on how you approach your direction? Yeah, very much so. You know, it's interesting these big shows become more and more CGI dependent. The show I've just done in Toronto was probably technically one of the most difficult shows I've ever shot, even more so, or even more difficult than The Witcher. And I just had a meeting with Lucasfilms, you know, George Lucas's company, uh, about uh, a project, and they're taking it even now into virtual studio world. So now, whereas on the last show I've just done in Jupiter's Legacy and on The Witcher, we were working on a lot of CGI's with green screen studios and green screens all over the place. What George Lucas is now doing is he's creating stages where you pre-shoot all the plates that you put as your background and they are on walls and ceilings which have all digital connections to your cameras. So your actors are actually acting to the pre-shot plates which is fantastic for them. But also all your camera moves are being tracked by these digital sensors all around this virtual studio. Because the most expensive bit of obviously, as I'm sure your listeners know, is that when you're working in a green screen s- stage and you're moving the camera, your background has to move yeah. in the same way as your camera is moving. Now, that's quite, that's quite complicated. And if you have sensors in your walls and your ceilings that are tracking all your camera moves, then it's much simpler, obviously, because you can... Yeah. So, so you've moved, moved from marker dots to actual sensors, which absolutely are interacting right. with the camera. So wow. I've <laughs> just sh- shot something which is in three different timelines. It's the 1930s, 1970s, and the current day, with actors who are playing in all those three different timelines with some very complicated green screen stage stuff with reflective floors and, and all the rest of it. And obviously, it means that your poor actor is just acting to a green room. And then when you cut it together, you're cutting together, you know, sequences that are just in a green room, which is very difficult to get, you know, the execs who are sitting miles away in Hollywood, you know, to really feel it because you haven't yet got the background. So to go back to The Witcher, what you have to do when you're doing big CGI work is you have to have a very clear concept about what you want it to be like before you start shooting. So that means a lot of conceptual work, a lot of work with your VFX team, a lot of work with your art department, preconceiving, storyboarding, story concepting. So you have all these boards so that everybody can see it, so that your execs and all the hierarchy in Hollywood know what it is that you're shooting. Because if everybody isn't fully aligned with the vision when you come to shoot it, nobody knows what they're shooting. Mm -hmm. So conceptually, you've got to get... It's the most difficult thing about directing anyway, is that you have to try and align all the creative thinking into the vision that you want to capture. That's difficult in itself. And then when you're trying to align that with something which doesn't exist because it's all CGI it's even more important to make sure that your teams, your creative teams from, from the art department, from, from makeup, from costume, from, from the visual effects teams, from the props, all of that, they, they've got some kind of picture as to what that alignment is going to look like. Wow. So it's a huge, huge 
part of what it is that we do. For example, in the um, in the finale, when Yennefer's unleashing her chaos, yep. shot at night time on a rock that we built with nothing there, basically. We were on a hill, but we had no flames, no fire. We didn't have any of all those elements that then finally became part of that sequence. So you have to, how do you get interactive light on that? So you have to put a whole load of lights on the floor that when she unleashes and unleashes that chaos, those lights come up and so the flames would light up her face and and all that sort of stuff. So then when we put the flames in, (laughs) it looks like there's flames, you know. You can only do that if you've preconceived it on the concept board so you can see what it's going to look like so that you say oh okay what we need is interactive light on their face so that it's not going to look silly you know? so, so you're running a lot on faith you know the faith that they're going to deliver what you want have you ever had a case where they've come back and thinking that isn't quite what i asked for that sort of cgi effect they isn't who? working as i wanted do you mean the visual effects team yeah because yeah. um, that's all afterwards you've yeah. had yes, you've done is. all the storyboards you've you've got your concept clear in your mind and then somebody back it industrial license magic yeah uh, i mean i think it's a it's a big issue and and none more so than on the show i've just done where i had created kind of sequences really big huge epic sequences of uh, this group going through a big long journey that ended up in a huge great sequence of walls coming around them 100 foot walls coming around them ceiling creating this kind of big cathedral dome with light shafting through all down on stage and then in the finale episode this big zeus versus hades superhero fight sequence that takes place within a brain that is you know sinews of light flying down that they go into and crash into a thousand pieces and all that now those are very very complicated sequences to shoot obviously but then to cut and then the way that it works in the american system at the moment is that the director still only gets four days cut. Now, you can't cut that in four days. So it's an issue that the industry definitely has to face, that the more ambitious shows become, and they are becoming hugely ambitious. I mean, each episode of The Witcher and each episode of the show I've just done, you know, the the budget is enormous, Mm. and that's really exciting. But the role of the director becomes even more important in the final cut of those because so much of the visual conception of it is in the director's head. And as you rightly say, if you then leave the project and you hand over to your VFX team, I lose a lot of that control. Now, on the show I've just done, I've been working with the visual effects team on Jurassic Park and Harry Potter and the Stranger Things and all that lot. So they are... Right, yeah. Right up there. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing and I trust them and I love them and they, you know, we had phenomenal conversations that encompassed everything from you know the the prosaic to you know does god exist um and all of which was relevant to the storytelling that we're trying to to do and so i trust them enormously but the bigger the show gets the more the director needs to be there to help steer it through yeah but you only get four days in to cut that's yeah it's insulting isn't it well no no it's it's that's just Bad business. It's That's because madness it's, because, I mean, yeah. yeah. Is that the I mean, assumption you've got it all right to begin with? No, I think it's, I think it's historical, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Oh, I, think okay. it's, I think it's like, you know, in, in television has changed, you know, hugely over the last few years. And, you know, when you were doing a show that was 
Hill Street Blues or, you know, something very simple that was procedural, you know, people talking in a room and maybe a little bit of location work. Then you could follow the model where you had seven or eight days prep, eight day shoot, four day cut. But you can't do that now when you're working on these super high end um, shows. It's just not possible. But it hasn't, that, that model hasn't changed. I am absolutely fascinated to hear your next project, which is very different, Home. What can you tell us about that, Mark? So Home is a really exciting project. That is unlike anything else that has been on the screens or unlike anything else I've done before, actually. And it's a multi-generational dance musical about homelessness. It's come out of a lot of research that I was doing in Bristol and Gloucester with some homeless kids. I don't know why, but I've always been interested in in the homelessness and, and, and what is home? Where is home for us? Who is home? And how do we identify home? Because it's such an important concept to our security and to our sense of you know, well-being and ultimately to our sense of how we can express ourselves in the world. I think if you have a secure sense of home, we're much more able to contribute to the world. So it's something that interests me. And I was sitting one day in this centre in Bristol called 1625, which works with 16 to 25-year-olds who are lost and homeless. And I was making cups of tea and hanging out with the kids and just, you know, doing what you do. And at one stage I was sitting next to this boy and he was tall, young, black kid. And he had R.I.P. tattooed on the back of his fist. And it was obviously very, very recent. It looked as if he'd literally just come from the tattoo artist. And I said to him, would you mind telling me the story? And he told me the story about his mate who'd just been stabbed and killed in Bristol that weekend. But he didn't tell me the story as I'm telling you now. He rhymed this story and he rapped this story and he spat this story. And then he got up and he started to move the story. Wow. And I thought, wow, you know, how interesting is it that in my industry we would normally turn the cameras onto the knife crime. That's the first instinct. What happened? How did it happen? What were the consequences? Who did it? Why? And so on and so forth. But look what was in front of me. This incredible energy from this kid and this warmth and this love for his mate. And it was done with so much poetry and lyricism and spontaneity. I thought, it's just as valid to look at that and point the cameras there. Not to deny the knife crime and the difficulty of all that, mm-hmm. but focus your camera on that. At the same time, I was talking to these boys up in Gloucester about their experience of homelessness and their experience of young people trying to make their lives. And when I left the room, they said to me, oh, Mark, you know, don't make another top boy or don't make another ill manners yeah. or bullet boy or another sink estate, grunge, drugs, adult, gangland, no hope sort of story. Good as those are, but only we go and see those and you're playing to the converted or, (laughs) you know, guilty white middle-class men like you. Uh, And there's some truth in that, you know. So I said, well, what do you want? And they said, well, could you make a film about our lives that my mum and my grandma will go and see? And I thought, wow, now that's a real challenge. How do we do that? So I put those two things together. And I say, okay, well, what if we were to make a story that was about these three kids who meet in the streets of Bristol that uses three generations of music so that everybody who comes into the cinema will feel comfortable? So it's not just, you know, young persons rap and grime. We can bring them together through music. 
And also we can learn about the changing nature of family relationships because they are changing. It seemed to me like it would be really exciting to look at the family dy dynamics and how they're changing and tell it through music. And because of this guy who is jiving and rhyming and moving this story about his mate who'd been stabbed, use movement and dance to express the emotion. So that's what we're doing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, that's fantastic. Yeah, it sounds yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> Which St. Paul's riots, though? Was it the ones back in uh, 89? 81, 82, yeah. yeah. 89, yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, I was there for those. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was quite a time, though. It was quite a time, yeah. But, yeah. You weren't causing trouble there, were you, Greg? No. I, the only reason I went to St. Paul's was to go and see some reggae concerts in those days because it, it was all exploding punk music and reggae and everything was, it was all mixing together. Well, and, and the, my point about the film really is, is, you know, these young people all have a hope for themselves yeah. in, the, in, in their lives. And if we only ever see them as the difficulties of their lives and we don't ever see the other side to them, which is this fantastic energy and this desire for life and desire to, and hunger to do something with their lives, then I think we're missing something. And I really wanted to make a film that didn't deny that, that looked at homelessness. And so, you know, it's a story about these three kids, really. From everything you're saying, it sounds like it's something, again, it's going to make that emotional connection. Mm. Because let's face it, they're not going to get any help from this government. No, <laughs> no, no, that's true. No, so that problem is going to be with us for a long, long time. And and it's interesting how you know I've just been in Hollywood, kind of you know working on these various different projects and also pitching stuff. And one of the films I was pitching was Home, and it's amazing how it resonates for everybody. And so the story, whilst it's taking place in Bristol and very particular to to this area over here, has a universal resonance, which is we are all trying to seek home. Mm. Yes. We all want to feel home. And what is that for us? And for these kids, what does it mean for them? Given that you want to reach different generations with different types of music, whoever you bring in to produce your music for you, they've got one hell of a challenge, haven't they? Oh, yeah, but hey, listen, you know, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to work with people who don't want to challenge. No, that's a <laughs> big comment, yeah, that's a big comment, yeah, yeah. That's or what it, or they could be looking at it going, this is fun. Wow, I get to play with three different types of music. What an opportunity. You know, yes. and, and so last week I had my first rehearsal. So we have Conrad Murray, who runs the Beatbox Academy at, at Battersea Arts Centre in London, who's just a genius. He did a brilliant show called Frankenstein, all in Beatbox, and a collaborator of his called Joy Pad B. And they're writing the... <laughs> Joy Pad B. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he's going to be here when we do the event on the 21st. Joy okay. Pad's going to be here, yeah. And he's written the most amazing lyrics. I didn't understand any of them, but when I got him to explain them to me, they were phenomenal. They're extraordinary, you know. So they're working on the show with me. Yolanda Mercy, who is a, a young Nigerian playwright who wrote a beautiful funny play called Quarter Life Crisis. And it's about her at 25 saying, or 26 actually, why is it suddenly I, I have to give in my rail card, my young person's rail card, so now I'm no longer a young person. What does that mean? And, 
you know, it's a very, very funny place. She's writing it with me. And then... You get um, it back when you're 60. I've just got mine. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. do they call that then? Yeah. Senior citizen? Senior citizen. That doesn't sound yeah. so good, does no, it? No, yeah. no, okay. Uh, write a play about it. <laughs> There's no light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, no, no, you don't go into that light. No, no, no. No, no that's right. It is just a tunnel. <laughs> and then I have a choreography group called Bird Gang, who are a collective of the most fantastic, exciting storytelling dancers who perform a lot in London and New York and all over the place, and they're choreographing, and they'll also be here on the 21st of February. Well, we've so, all got tickets, so we're all going to be there. Great. Yeah. So, look, you know, come along. You know, what I can say to everybody is come along to this event. It's a real experiment. I wrote a 15-page treatment in a sort of rhythm and a rhyme and a vibe, and... I went away and when I was shooting in Toronto, there was American Thanksgiving and most of the crew went back to Los Angeles and I hired a little hut somewhere in the bush in Canada in the, in the forests, which had no electricity and no gas and no water and no kitchen and no Wi-Fi, critically, <laughs> just a wood-burning <laughs> stove and a bed to start to work on this thing called home. And as I was rereading the treatment, I suddenly thought, you know, it's conceptually difficult to get people to understand what this is. Why don't we just try and stand this up and give it a go and see how Mm. it works? And so the event on the 21st of February is an experiment. No idea how it'll be, but we want to give it a go and then talk to the audience about it and, you know, get some feedback and share. I can certainly talk to you about older music, so that'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) These two talk about younger music, but we'll gloss over that. Come, come on the 21st. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. But it also sounds like, yes, this will be a great film and and the concept of it, but it also sounds like it'd be a great stage play as well. Interesting you say that. You know, when I was rehearsing last week with them, I did wonder about that. Well, I'd be interested to see what you think. Yeah. You know, when when you see it on the 21st, you know, I definitely think there is a stage play in there. It would be a really exciting thing to do. I mean, I haven't done theatre, you know, I, I do bits and pieces of theatre whenever I can, but I haven't really done proper theatre for 30, 35 years. I'd love to do it again. Yeah, yeah. Come, Jeff, tell me oh, what you think. Yeah, you know. no, definitely and, and, and the attraction, obviously, of doing a movie is it has bigger reach and... I love the idea of going back to where we started, you know, three generations sharing this darkened space and learning a little bit about each other's lives, maybe. And it's a theme, a subject, unfortunately, is universal. I think there's an unfortunate side to it, which is, you know, homelessness is obviously unfortunate. But I think the universal theme behind it is, to all of us, what does home mean? Mm, And where do we find home? In the same way, you know, if you think about, pulling it out of my head yet, Rain Man Mm -hmm. is a little film about two guys, you know, but it's sort of really, why does that resonate? I mean, apart from some fantastic performances, it's a little story that resonated across the world because it's really about greed. Yeah. And it's a film about loyalty and brotherhood. And those are themes that I think if we as storytellers can touch on in our work, whether it's in The Witcher Mm. or in the Marvel Studios or in Home, has a place in our world. Interesting, again, what you're saying is there are four of us sitting in this room at the moment. We're in Stroud. Two of us live in Stroud. Two live in Cheltenham. And none of us started out our journeys there. We've all ended up there. And all, I would say, consider the places where we are now, we would call them home. Yeah. 
Well, and, you know, the question is, is it about a place? Is it about a person? Yeah. Is it about an animal? Is it about a thing? Is it about what's inside us? You know, they're all really relevant things. And how can we find, how can we create a world in which more people can feel at home, wherever they are? Because I think that's what I came into storytelling to do. Talking of stage, and I was intrigued about back in your acting days, your one-man show of Alan Stiletto's Loneliness, the Long Distance Runner. What are your memories of that show, and why did you pick on that very interesting and very angry piece? So I had a theatre company called the Three Monkeys Theatre Company, uh, which I set up with a very good friend of mine called Tom Richardson. And um, we, we ended up, you know, wanting to go in different directions with the company. So I set up this other company to do uh, this one-man show. And John York, who is an old fr- friend of mine who then became head of drama at Channel 4 and then uh, BBC and very associated with EastEnders, directed this one-man show. So it was a time of the short, sharp shock that Michael Howard brought in with the, um, the Tory government. And, you know, I was 22, 23, something like that. We were pretty angry about this. And the, for those of you who don't know about it, the short, sharp shock was all about saying to young people, basically, we are going to give you like three months of really brutal regime in a prison and hope that that shocks you out of ever wanting to do crime again. An insane, stupid concept, because as if, you know, crime wasn't related to social circumstances and opportunity and education and all the rest of it. How stupid can you be? Anyway... We were angry about it. And it was the time of Thatcherism where there was a lot of theatre that was angry with what was happening to politics. And the loneliness of the long-distance runner is the story about a kid who is sent to Borstal and he has a horrible time there. And he discovers that he can run. Not only can he run, but also he's allowed to run because he's a good runner. And so it was his freedom from the regime of being in Borstal. That's where he would get his space. So he thought, well, OK, well, great, I'm going to do that. I'm going to run and get away from the Borstal. And the, the governor in charge of the prison said, OK, well, you can run for the Borstal Blue Ribbon Prize Cup, which was the race that was being run by all the different Borstals around the country. And all his fellow inmates thought he was brown-nosing to the governor. So they turned against him a little bit. But he didn't really care because it gave him the space to run and freedom from the regime. And in the story, what happens, spoiler alert, yes. is he runs this big race <laughs> and he's miles ahead of all the other stalls in the big Blue Ribbon Prize Cup for all England. He's miles ahead of everybody. He gets to the tape and he stops just before crossing the tape and he waits. And everybody's cheering at him and the governor's saying, what's he doing? Why isn't he crossing the tape? We would have won. And then he waits and he waits and he waits. And he waits for everybody to overtake him and cross the line first. And then he gives two fingers up to the, to the governor of the prison. So it's a fantastic story. And it was done as a black and white movie with Tom Courtney in the lead. It's an um, Alan Sillito book. Alan Sillito book, that's right. And it was part of the angry young men yeah. yes. of literature in the 1950s. So we took it and updated it to the 1980s and made it, made it about the short, sharp shock. And that's why we wanted to do it. And it was a very aggressive piece. And it was exhausting. And we opened it at the Edinburgh Festival to two men and a dog. And uh, it got some great reviews. And then somebody from London came and said, well, we, would we be interested in taking it down to London? And we thought, hmm, yes. <laughs> so we immediately went down to London and we played to two men and a dog. Uh, Time Out gave it Critics' Choice. The next day we sold out. 
We went on tour, came back to London again to do it again. It was about 18 months, but it was a one-man show and I was exhausted at the end of it. Mm, you know? I yeah. bet. Yeah. Think about being young and you can do these things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I did it. Yeah. I don't know, I did it. But what I find fascinating on that is, you know, and it's a quote, that, that I read from uh, of yourself from another interview saying there are a lot of angry voices coming through in a way I don't see now, which is a terrible thing. But our political and social conditions at the moment are as shocking then, probably mm. with even less intelligence than mm. we had in government then. Do you think that's going to come through? Those voices are now going to come through? Oh, Jeff, I really hope so. I mean, I just think we owe it, you know, as, as, as creators to, to do that. I just think art creativity you know part of our job is to look at the world and to devour it and to taste it and to to bring it back for the world to look at in a different way to so we can see our world sometimes you know when you're in the woods you can't see the trees and sometimes our job as creatives is to is to find ways to enable people to see what's going on and you know it sounds Crazy, but, you know, in all the shows that I do, whether it's, you know, the Marvel Studios show or whether it's The Witcher, you can still try and do that. The Witcher essentially is about a monster killer. Mm. And, of course, his journey throughout the series, and it becomes, you know, very clear as as the series goes through, who are the real monsters? The monsters that I'm being asked to kill or the people who are hiring me to kill them. Now, that's a story that I can sign up to, and, and I, think, I, I think if we can't be angry about what's going on in the world at the moment, then what can we be angry about? Yeah. Just to, to kind of to go back to your point a little bit about, you know, angry voices, is that it's a really big, interesting question because it also comes down to funding. It's very hard to make stuff. And where does the funding come? Well, quite often it comes from you know, government bodies. Well, if you start making angry stories about those government bodies, will you get the funding to do it, you know? And, you know, in my day, when I had the Three Monkeys Theatre Company, those 784 Theatre Company, 84% of the wealth is owned by 7% of the people. And it was called 784, and it was, you know, it was all about saying, you know, there's an inequality which, you know, is not going to be good for our society. And... The, the, the Young Vicks started to uh, a scheme called Theatre Uncut. I don't know if you know Theatre Uncut. I did a few of the shows, the plays around here, actually, in the Stroud area, where they were saying, where are these angry voices? S- nowhere. So let's commission around the world in hotspots young voices, young writers, to write a one-act play that in November is free to put on, no rights whatsoever, in order to encourage... F- ferment and some of these plays were really staggeringly challenging but great for it you know where are those plays coming from but also how do how do you get an audience to go to those plays nowadays when you have social media and people watching stuff from their phones and and all the rest of it's a different kind of a world but we we've got to be angry Mm. i i don't see in the environment we're in at the moment Something like Kathy Come Home, which came out of the BBC in the 60s, I don't see the BBC making anything like that. I would struggle even to see Channel 4 making anything mm. like that. And, they're, and they're cut, they can be cut in edge mm. if you want to be. Well, and also, would you make that film now? Would it have the same impact? Um, you know, Kathy Comes Home, when you had, you know, m- movies, I don't know, was it a television film? It Kathy was, Comes Home, yeah. yeah. 
There was perhaps three channels in, in those yeah. days, you know. Um, so, so the viewing figures were huge. There was nowhere else to go. There's no social media. Or you went to the movies. Yeah. Of course, nowadays, it's a different kind of a world. You have a plethora of platforms. So you, you, you probably couldn't make it in the same way and have the same impact. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, it's part of just going back to home. Is there another way that we can tell these stories that speaks to the generations that's, that's, gives them access. So, I, I don't know, I, Daniel Blake, was a brilliant piece of work. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, 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 I, I don't know what the figures were for it. I can't imagine it had huge viewing figures. I can't imagine loads of people went to it. Um, not anything like the numbers that will have seen Cathy Comes Home, probably, because yeah. Yeah. there are only three channels then. Yeah. Um, it's a fantastic piece of work, a shocking piece of work. Um, but maybe we need to find other ways of doing it. And I guess home, for me is my attempt at trying to bring people's attention to the vivacity and the vitality and the creativity of our young people, as opposed to saying how destitute everything is. Yeah. But I think, I think your approach is right in that Cathy Come Home is just one medium just doing its thing. With home, you're doing dance, you're doing f- film eventually, you're doing rap you're doing poetry. It's it's all multimedia, isn't mm-hmm. it? And that's what we need in these days because people, their attention span is shorter and you need something to hook them. Oh, that's a great dance piece. Oh, there's a song. Oh, look, they drop back, you know, to the grandparents' generation and there's different music there and, oh, here's the parents' generation. I, mean, I think that's and, the And approach. you can enjoy it all. You know, you can yeah. enjoy the Baptist church music of yeah. The, yeah. The, yeah. The, the grandparents of Noah, who's yeah. the figure in, in Birmingham who has to escape his, yeah. his gang life and come to Bristol. You know, you can, you can enjoy the old people's home, Nana Mary, who's knitting with all her friends who are listening to, you know, Rod Stewart. Uh, or something like that. You can enjoy all those different things within the context of what it is, you know. And from my point of view, change the angle of your camera away from the destitute, which is a difficult watch, important though it is, and look at the energy and the creativity that exists within these people and subliminally be saying, what a loss to our world that is by not being able to give these people a handle on life. Jump ahead a little. Mm. Uh, take another listener question, if I may, mm. from Declan. I love them. I love them. <laughs> Great. How, how does working for the BBC, when you work for the BBC, yeah. compare with working for Netflix? Wow, what a great question. Well, working with Netflix is changing quite a bit, even since I've started working. So when I first started working for Netflix, they had House of Cards and Daredevil, really. Yeah. And it was a small outfit and their philosophy, and it's, if you're interested, it's really worth reading the Netflix ethos. It's really inspiring. Mm. Their philosophy was to free the creatives. Oh, wow. Really. And not only was that their ethos, but that's what they did. They didn't want to interfere. They said, we hire you because we think you're good. Now do your thing because I know that it'll be better than anything that we can do. And when I was working with Daredevil and the Marvel Studios stuff, the freedom that we had was fantastic and very, very exciting. And the challenge as a creative then was to seize that freedom and do something with it. 
that's changing now because Netflix has expanded so exponentially and they're doing their own stuff. And there's so many shows that are being run all over the world in different kind of networks and headquarters that this ethos is not being upheld in quite the same way as it was, inevitably so, I guess. And I guess they got the competition from the other networks now. You've got Disney Plus online, you've got Amazon, Amazon Prime, yeah. and Apple yeah, Plus. And Apple Plus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's another big question. But, you know, what, how do you best compete with those people? You know, that, that's a really interesting question. The BBC is, you know, a public service broadcaster, so it has to fulfil that public service remit. And it's accountable to its licence payers. You know, the last show I did for the BBC was The Musketeers. And The Musketeers, you know, went out one week and then you had to wait another week for the next episode, which was an episodic story that was entire to its own episode. And that's quite an old-fashioned way of telling story, I think. And one of the things that I've loved so much about um, working internationally over the last six years or so more is the expansiveness of it. The need when you're working on a global level to punch through. So they are hungry for adventure. But one thing it's got that, again, other channels like Netflix are copying is less, not more. Mm-hmm. You know, their, their shows run six to 10 episodes, mm-hmm. which was eight episodes. Yeah, eight episodes yeah. 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 And you can tell a story within that. You don't need that American model of 22 episodes no, no, a season. No. Yeah where you've got so much filler going on, you can just concentrate on your story. And That's changing, that. though. Uh, you know, it's interesting how, you know, the, all the Marvel Studios things were 13 episodes. Yeah. And we always felt that was too long. Yeah. You know, we always felt like the story was done in 10, basically, yeah. and you're having to kind of, sometimes even eight. And actually, that used to be the model, and what's interesting now is like The Witcher is eight. Um, Jupiter's Legacy, what I've just done, is eight episodes, you know. So they are coming down, and they are more interested in doing miniseries because and also and other interesting things you know that i found this last time i was in la is that they're kind of interested in looking at half hour formats now right. that there's a sort of fatigue there's so much content out there can you commit to a series which is 10 episodes 10 hours long and is it easier yep. to commit to half hours is that what the viewer demand is? You know, even 10 minutes, YouTube, Red were doing 10 minutes, you know, um, dramas and, you know, it's interesting. It's all, it's all changing. It's all being, it's all shifting as the world and its viewing patterns shift, yeah. you know. But also, you know, never forget that, you know, the BBC is, is an incredible organisation to work for. I mean, it does some phenomenal work. And at its best, it's authored work. You know, when you have a writer who has a voice that has something that they want to say, for example, I did Criminal Justice, which was a Peter Moffat series, brilliant writer. And the first series was with Ben Wishaw. And the second series I did was was with Maxine Peake, Matthew McFadden, Eddie Marson, um, Steve McIntosh, Sophie Arcanado, you know, very authored piece, very heavily, a single writer's voice to it, you know. And it's hard to find that sometimes in American shows mm. because you have a writer's room. I you can, can. You I can, can only think it. of Aaron Sorkin would be the only person I could compare it with. Yeah, I think True Detective 1 was yes. was like that too. Yes. I think Fargo, 
Um, well, no Hawley's work. Yeah, no work. I think they do exist. I think Succession, Jesse Armstrong, he's a British writer, actually. I think Jesse's managed to do something phenomenal with Succession. Um, I think it can happen, but it needs curating. Yeah, Veep is another one. I know yeah, uh, Veep, Amanda, well, Amanda knew she yeah. started it, but then it was mm, taken on yeah, by American yeah. writers. Yeah. So the, the tradition in the British tradition of program making is your writer is not the showrunner. Your writer is the writer, and then you have a producer, and then you have a director. And ah, in the American system, right. you, your writer is the showrunner. And that's sometimes can work absolutely brilliantly, and sometimes it's not great because the writer isn't necessarily the same animal that needs to be able to produce a show on the floor every day, gather a crew, gather a team of people, wrestle with the whole beast that is production. Mm. It's not necessarily the same person. And also, writers aren't always filmmakers. The written word on the script is the starting point for a film. Yeah, the Film is essentially a visual medium. And what you quite often find in the American system, I think, is that the writers are really only interested in the word and so the frustration for me is sometimes yeah. you get into the cutting room and you look at it and you think well you know we've shot this whole great thing in this incredible location with these beautiful landscapes but actually the scene is close up to 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 close up we could have done it anywhere yeah. because the filmmaking behind it has been taken out in place of the word and then if you take the words out of it and show the scenery then the writer's going to go what would you do with my script <laughs> I, I had a situation where I did a show in this country actually where I shot the opening of this series and um, we went into the cutting room to show it to the writer, who was also the executive producer. She said to me, well, hang on a minute. How come we got all your shots in there in the front of the episode <laughs> and none of my words? And I said, it's not my shots or your words. It's a film we're making. Does it tell the story? Is this yeah. the best way to tell the story? Yeah. Let's have that conversation. Now, we went to a wonderful talk that you gave last year mm. and you're explaining all about the setup at the industry. And you told some great stories. And you told about directing an episode of Hannibal, which we mentioned earlier, with the wonderful Lawrence Fishbourne. And there was a moment where you had to redo a sequence where, in effect, hadn't quite worked. Mm. Now, we've spoken about CGI, and these are now practical effects. Mm. I mean, how do you approach a sequence like that where you've got this big practical effect, mm. it doesn't work, and, you know, you've got to tell an actor, sorry, you're going to be a few more hours while we reset this and you've got to go again. How do you approach something like that, Mark? Um, gingerly. <laughs> Is that because <laughs> it's Lawrence Fishbourne? <laughs> or anybody yeah. I would yeah. have thought. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, with, en with anybody, but, you know, it was particularly, with, with the, in that instance, it was particularly because Lawrence had made a particular effort to come over to me to say, it was basically, it was a... Uh, special effects where it was a dream sequence where Will, played by Hugh Dancy, was imagining a sequence in which they killed Lawrence Fishburne, they being him and Hannibal Mads. And so we shot this and it involved Mads taking one of his sharp knives, going over to Lawrence Fishburne at the dinner table and drawing the knife across his neck holding his head back so that the blood sprayed out. In order to make that work, you have to put a prosthetic around the neck. This particular way, there are lots of different ways you could do this, but I wanted, it, I wanted to see it in action. So you put a prosthetic around the whole of the neck 
and you have a pre-made slit in that prosthetic so that when he then throws his head back, it splits open the, the cut and inside that cut you have a tube which goes to a pump so that when it splits open through the pressure of the neck going back, the pump then releases the blood out of the wow. prosthetic. So it's quite a complicated piece of yeah. kit around the neck. Now, Lawrence is very much like me in that he hates having anything on his neck, tight to his neck. Just getting him to put on a tie is hard enough. <laughs> so he made an effort to come up to me to say, Mark, I do not like doing this. I will do it for you, but you have one go at it. So okay. I said, okay, that's cool, that's not a problem. Guys, did you hear that? So foreshadowing. I pre-warned the prosthetic department. This is only going to happen once. It's got to work, so do your best work, guys. And all the, the special effects people, so you have different teams, so you have the prosthetics people, the makeup people who obviously have to feather it into the neck so you can't see it, special effects people who are on the pump. And then, of course, you've got to rehearse it such that, you know, when you're shooting it, you're going to get it. Because what you don't want to do then is for it all to work and not get it on camera. So we rehearsed and we had a double in for Lawrence whilst he was two hours in makeup to get this thing done. And I, I had a double in there. I had Hugh and I had Mads. And we rehearsed the move and we rehearsed the move uh, so that it would work. And we made sure the camera was in the right angle so that I could get it. I had two cameras on it so that when, when, when Mads did this and the neck threw it back, that I'd be on an acute angle, 90-degree angle, so I could see the blood coming out and all the rest of it. And it was all working fine. And Lawrence came and we did the scene and sat down and you can start to feel <laughs> your heart beginning to pump, you know, the adrenaline running through. Um, and as he sat down, he waved his finger at me as if to say, one go, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going, yeah, that's fine, don't worry about it. I'm kind of super cool. It's all going to be great. We're ready for you, man. Great, let's do it, you know action we did it and we did it absolutely as we rehearsed it and for some oh horrible reason mads's tie got in the way of the split on his prosthetic and everything worked fine the camera's in the right place the split happened the blood came out but it got blocked by mads's tie and i called cut and I'm looking at the monitor thinking, oh, my God, that we haven't got that, have we? And the DOP is coming to me saying, I think we're going to have to do that again, Mark. And I'm saying, no, 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 please don't tell me that. Let's look at it again. So we play it back. And by this time, Lawrence has stood up and said, we got that, huh? Yeah? Uh, and I'm going, uh, just checking it through, looking at the monitors, looking at the take. It's not there. It's really not there. So I go up to Lawrence and I say, I'm so sorry, mate, it's not there, we haven't got it. And he says, yeah, right, okay, so what are we doing next? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I, I, I'm, I'm serious. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing that again. So I said, okay, I would really love to do it again. I think it's really worth our while. It's a beautiful sequence. And I know this is a pain in the ass for you. And I think we can use the prosthetics that's already on there. We don't have to redo the whole thing. But I, I would really like to try and do this again because I think it's worth it. And I'm so sorry. It's just one of those crazy things. It's, there's nothing that we could have done that could have stopped this. It's just one of those things. If you want to come and have a look at it. So I brought Lawrence over to the monitor and I showed him and he could see that it, you know, 
Mads says Ty got it in the wrong place. It was, you know, it's what happens. It's one of those things. And he looked at me and he said, this is it. Then <laughs> <laughs> we did it again and we got it and it was great. And, um, Second time a charm. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. You know, I, you know, I don't know the answer, how to answer that question. I think you, you know, look, filmmaking is complicated. Um, yeah. There are many, many different moving parts and, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. But, but I think, you did answer it because the the important thing is you shared what you had. Yeah, this yeah. is what it's not an ego thing. It was a practical issue. You showed the issue, and Lawrence went along with it and said, yeah. "One more time." He's an old pro, Lawrence. You know, I mean, yeah. he, the thing about people like Lawrence, you know, Lawrence is a fascinating guy to spend time. I love being with Lawrence. Apart from the fact that he's fantastic, he's really good company. You know, all in between times, I was saying to him, so just, just tell me about Apocalypse Now. Never mind about Hannibal, you know, just, I want to know about it. I want to, what, what, so what was Marlon Brando like, you know? And, uh, so really, really, really good stories. But he's an old pro and he knows, he also knows how long things take. And he does not suffer fools. So if he feels like you are not on it or you're doing another take because, well, let's do another take, or if he feels like you're, you're just hoovering up shots yeah. for the sake of it and not really thinking about how you're going to be using shots, he will not stand for that. And I really respect that because, you know, we shouldn't be doing things for the sake of doing it because maybe I might need it. We've got to be better than that. And as a director, we should always be shooting for the cutting room or we're always shooting for what we think we want this scene to be like. And I know I work with, you know, sometimes I come into a show and I see how direct other directors are working and I can see that they're just doing a wide shot, a mid shot, a tight shot, and then an ECU shot on every single scene. And they're just literally covering everything. And I know the executives love that because it means they can cut the scene any which way that they want. I don't work like that. You know, I have a sense of how I want a scene to be and I shoot that scene as I want it to be. And I know that sometimes gets me into trouble in the cutting room because the execs are saying, well, haven't you got that shot? And I said, no, that's not how I wanted to cut it. But when you're working with people like Lawrence Fishburne, they will respect that more than if you just say, let's just cover this in a wide shot, a mid shot, close up. And, and then does that, is that just four cameras or do they shoot it four times? Four times. Holy cow. Okay, yeah. right. That's, that's a waste. I mean, it's tough enough, you know, um, you're always doing scenes, you know, obviously more than one way. And yeah. I'm a single cameraman. So mm. nowadays we tend to work with two cameras, but you, I will never try and do cross shooting because you can't get the lighting to work. I, I don't really like shooting wide and tight if possible, because your sound can't be great. I used to use a lot of headroom on my shots as well. So your boom is always a problem when you're doing a, a wide and a tight. Mm. I'm never trying to shoot my second camera as coverage. I'm only ever trying to use right. my second okay. camera for shots that I need. So how did you do The Witcher then? Because that camera is all over the place. I thought you had loads of cameras. So, Yeah, we did. I mean, on, on a lot of those action sequences, you have to because, you know, when you've got large numbers of people, the time it takes to, you know, for example, with the, the poison scenes and the fog and all that, you know, if you've got a larger number, number amount of people that you have to redress because they've got... Yeah. 
poison all over their costume yeah. or whatever it is, you know, that's going to take you a huge amount of time to put them through makeup yeah. all over again, clean them all up and all the rest of it. So in those situations, you do put multiple cameras on so you can get as much as you can in one right. take. Okay. And, and often in action sequences, you design it with more than one camera in mind because, you know, there's a risk involved yeah. in good action sequences. But particularly in The Witcher, I noticed that there wasn't that much cutting. It was this, everything seemed to flow. How did you get that effect? Oh, that's, that's so nice of you to say that um, uh, and to appreciate that because it's one of the things that I, I, I work <laughs> um, h- hardest on, which is that, and there's some really interesting conversations to have about this, about cutting mm. um, and, ha- and how you cut and why you cut. Um, you know, cutting should be a big decision to cut right. something. And you shouldn't just be arbitrarily cutting left, right and centre all the time, you know. You're making a disjunction when you cut. Mm, mm. And you are, it's really interesting, it's, there's so much to say about this, but um, if you want an audience to engage in something, if you're constantly cutting, mm. the audience internally senses that yeah. and and starts to create that as an internal rhythm. Mm. So they're expecting you to cut and so they never actually settle. Now, if you want to tell a story and if you want to tell a character story, you have to allow the audience to be with character. Right. And as soon as you start cutting away all the time, you can no longer be with the character. You can no longer enter the interior life of that character. Right. Okay. And in and that's that's also true of action. Right. So you have to try to stay with the action as fluid as you can. Otherwise, all you're doing is you're cutting for action, not, yeah. not shooting for story. Was that your decision when you did that incredible fight sequence in Daredevil? Yeah. Just to follow that all the way? So Daredevil is a really interesting example. I did the big stairwell sequence in Daredevil season two, and Phil Abraham had done that brilliant action sequence in the corridor on Daredevil season one yeah. that was a phenomenal piece of work. So when I did the one in season two, everybody was saying, oh, we're trying to top the one in season one. Mm-hmm. It's not true, in fact. It all comes from story. And the, the reason behind it was that, if you remember, Daredevil had the Punisher. They'd been on the rooftop. Mm-hmm. They'd had this big argument about redemption versus revenge, two different philosophies battling it out on the rooftop. Daredevil manages to beat the Punisher down and he's carrying him over the shoulder and he's going down this corridor, which is where the single shot starts from, going along the corridor to get him into the lift to go down to take him away. He gets him into the lift. The biker who the Punisher has been antagonising from the rooftop are coming up the, the stairs and he knows that. And as he gets into the lift, this old boy comes out of the room into the middle of the corridor and Daredevil knows that the bikers are coming up and they're just going to kill him to get to Daredevil. And as a daredevil, as a character, he can't let that happen. So he leaves the Punisher in the lift and he presses the button. The lift starts to go down. He comes out of the lift to the oncoming bikers. Now, for me, as I'm planning this, as I see this script, I'm thinking, what's the story? The story is, oh, my God, the Punisher's going down in the lift. If I don't get down there pretty quick, the Punisher's going to somehow find his way out of the lift and I'm going to lose him. Yeah. And then we're back into... The Punisher Daredevil thing. I've got to get down pretty damn quick because I can't use the lift because the lift's gone down. I've got to save this old boy and I've got to get down to the Punisher. How do I best do that as a director? 
How do I tell that story most effectively? <laughs> now, okay, so there's 40 stuntmen coming up the staircase, bikers or whatever it is. I've got to get through that. Now, if I break each one of those up into a fight sequence, I've completely lost track of the story. So the best way is to stay with Daredevil all the way through that fight sequence and never let go of him until we get down to the lift yeah. to where Punisher is. Yeah. How are we going to do that? So I pitch it to, to Marvel and they think you're crazy. You know, you can't. That's an insane amount of fight sequence to try and do in a single shot. And I said, yeah, but what we, we, can, we can get the camera out through the door. We'll put it on a wire. We'll go down the middle of the staircase. We'll have another operator, you know, three flights down and they can take the camera off the wire and then we'll carry on down like this. So I sort of in my head designed it as a, as a sequence. And they eventually said, you know, okay, I can see what you're saying. I think it's a really good point for the story. Show me that you can do it. So I worked with Phil Silvera, who's the stunt coordinator, who I've just worked with on another job, and we came up with a kind of choreography for it. But to, to the point that you, yeah. you, you initially made, Graham, which is that, you know, how do you get that single-shot fluidity? Yeah. Well, A, you have to say, you have to understand why you want to do that, which yeah. has to be for story or character. And B, then you've got to, you've got to work at it. Mm -hmm. You've got to work at how can we do this? You mm -hmm. know? Once you start to get, it into your head that we need to do this for story, suddenly then breaking it down into shots becomes not a possibility. On that Daredevil sequence, you know, I, I'd spent six hours rehearsing that first bit going down the corridor before we'd even done any of the fight, and I hadn't done, shot a single frame. It just wasn't working. It was really hard to do. By which time Los Angeles had woken up and were on the blower because we were shooting in New York. And they were saying, well, what the hell is going on? You're six hours gone and you haven't shot anything. What the hell is happening down there, guys? And all the crew were beginning to pull away from me and saying, just break it into shots, Mark. Why don't you just break it? It's so much easier. And then the coordinator started to pull away from me. And, you know, it's like, and I was getting really nervous thinking, this isn't going to work. Is this going to work? How, how can I do this? You know, should I just break this into shots? And I kept on saying, no, guys, come on, we, we, we can do this, you know, we've got to elevate. And Charlie Cox, who's playing Daredevil, you know, love him, you know, came to me and said, you know, Mark, we can do this, we must do this, you know. And, of course, we got it, and, of course, everybody talked about it, and it became the thing that, that in season <laughs> yeah. everybody talked about, you know. And in, in The Witcher, when we were doing that sword fight, it seemed to me that, you know, this is episode one, it's a character story, that if I follow him through these eight men yeah. in a single shot, not only am I saying, watch out, mm -hmm. this guy really knows yeah, how yeah. to fight yeah. as a character story, but I'm also then giving me space in the next part of the fight sequence with Renfrey to break it up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. If the first bit is all broken up into lots, lots of different bits and pieces, the second bit with Renfrey is going to feel slightly repetitive to break that up. If I can do this in one, A, I'm showing, wow, he's a real fuck-off yeah, swordsman. Yeah, yeah. But B, I'm also buying myself the space then to stop the Renfrew fight, the beats that I really wanted to stop it, to land those character beats between him and, and yeah. her. Yeah. No, I loved it. I mean, the, the initial where you just, the guy fires the crossbow bolt at him and he just flicks that out of the way and you think... Uh oh, <laughs> and then yeah. you go through that, and I thought that was brilliant. And then Renfrey comes out, and then they have that fight, and then you don't see her knife no. until it's too late. You go, oh no, yeah. and then that works in a yeah. different way. I thought it was just, great. and also those moments between 
her and him of eye contact, yes. which, yeah. you know, Wolfie, who's, who's the um, Stegeman, who's the, who's the fight coordinator on that, you know, who, who worked with Henry and Tom Cruise on Mission Impossible, uh, who came in to kind of choreograph just that fight sequence, you know. We talked a lot about it. I mean, it was Wolfie's design to do the bolt. Yeah. It was beautiful, brilliant, yeah. brilliant piece of design. And then when we talked about the Renfri fight, um, we talked very specifically about me wanting to, it not just to become a continuous sword fight, because um, you kind of lose the character within it. I, I know it's swashbuckling and it's brilliant and it's beautiful mm. and all the rest of it, but I'm interested in character and story. And so how can we tell this fight sequence and not lose touch with the character and the story? And most particularly in that particular fight sequence, the relationship. Because don't forget, they've just had sex around a fire. Yeah. He's just opened himself up. And that's what was painful for Geralt in that fight sequence. Is that why they're so close together? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because that was weird as well. Not w- weird in a good way. He thought, hang on, this is so yeah. different. A fight. I wanted, really to, I wanted that sequence to be almost like lovemaking. Uh, right. Okay. So I did get the right impression yeah, from you it. Did, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Fine. They were very so when they're, when, they're, when they're really close to each other, they could. Choose to kiss. Kiss or stab. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. All right. So that's our own individual analysis of a scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So final listener question. Now that the Marvel-Netflix connection's at an end, would you like to work on one of the cinematic Marvel films? Oh, I don't think so. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, um, Oh, well, yeah. For the right money, yeah, yeah for well, the- <laughs> that might be available. Um, I think, it, look, I love working for Marvel Studios. I think they're an incredibly exciting and creative and inventive team of people. But to your point, Jeff, uh, earlier on about these big blocks, blockbusters being slightly episodic. Yeah. And it's a bit like the conversations I was having with Lucas Films just recently. I, as a storyteller, need to know why I'm telling a story. It takes a lot out of you. It takes a lot of time. I have to be away from the family. I need to know why I'm telling the story. Uh, and, th- and, and that doesn't mean to say, I, you know, I have to be heavy about it at all. Yeah. But there has to be a driver. And so long as I know what that is, then I can commit and what I'm not interested in doing is fodder. And I don't think Marvel does do fodder. I mean, they have some hits and some misses, you know. So I've just turned down a quite a big job because I just felt like... It just felt to me like it was... It, look, it, I, I probably made a huge mistake and it probably would have made me huge amounts of money. But I just didn't understand why I would be doing it and why I could this is going to sound a bit grand, but why at the end of my life I could say that was time well worth spending doing that. And that matters to me. And so, so long as I can answer those questions, you know. And what's interesting is you're, you're working between these big projects at the moment. You've also got your personal projects, yeah. something like home, which is yeah. very personal to yeah. you and, and can able to jump between the two. Try to. You know, um, talk to me in six months. <laughs> I mean, there are two other movies I'm, I'm working. One is a, you know, Second World War film, which is an extraordinary story. I'm working on a road movie 
From London to Glasgow, which is an extraordinary, wonderful, brilliantly written piece of storytelling. You know, so there are lots of different projects and it's always about balancing up, keeping yourself within the industry so that your people still think about you because yeah. the, the waters close in very quickly in Hollywood. But also, you know, keeping an eye on why we, why we do what we do, which is, you know, to tell particular kinds of stories. You mentioned a couple of times during this interview, Jupiter's Legacy. Yeah. Now, that's completely new to me. Yeah, is me there too. anything you can tell us about that? Yeah, Jupiter's Legacy is, you know, a brilliant uh, series of comic books that Mark Miller created. Mark has just sold his... Uh, it's just gone into bed with Netflix, rather like Marvel did, to bring that whole universe to life. And Jupiter's Legacy is essentially the f- how the first superheroes got their powers. And it's a group of six people, and it's in the 1930s, and how they got their superpowers, why they got the superpowers, and the superpowers were to make the world a better place during the Depression era of America. And so it's an origin story, and then it's about how do they make the world a better place, and because they're six human beings, how they mess it up. (laughs) And how, as human beings, you know, we are all given the possibility of being extraordinary and yet our egos and our greed and our personal conflicts and our relationships tend to mess everything up. That, no, that's no, my that, yeah. the show, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I've just finished watching the Watchmen series, which yeah. is almost like a, a prequel, a prequel sequel to you know, the, the original Watchmen. Yeah. And, and again, that's about flawed human beings. Yeah. It's great. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, to the point that I was saying earlier on, you know, if you can find the allegory behind these things, and I think that's why that's why Marvel Studios is so brilliant. You know, you, I remember when I, I was asked to, to do The Punisher, and I was thinking, well, really? I mean, The Punisher is like such a right-wing, gun-toting character. Yeah. Why would we want to make a series about The Punisher? And of course, yeah, I worked with John. I introduced John into Daredevil, you know. Yeah. So I knew John would bring all his humanity to the, to, to the part. And, you know, when Steve Lightfoot, who's the showrunner who I've made six films with now, said to me, but, you know, what we want to do with it in the Marvel universe is is tell the story about what do we do with our vets when they come back from fighting? Oh, the Rambo story. Yeah, the Rambo story. And and what do we do with that, those people? And, you know, is it no wonder that they turn into these kind of vigilantes because of the way they're held? And then I suddenly think, hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah, I can can do that. And so these comic book strips are sometimes, you know, dismissed as just comic books or superheroes or whatever it is. And I always say, but they're allegorical. You know, the allegory of Jupiter's legacy is all about who who imbued these people with these special powers. And, you know, it's interesting, I had a text just recently from Mark Miller saying, you know, it's that wonderful Lovecraftian side of things. You know, what is this otherness in the world that exists? Is it an alien creature? Is it God? And those are the conversations I had with my visual effects people about God in terms of <laughs> yeah. this series, you know. And that's interesting. It's like the best of Stephen King's writing. You, you've got this story in front of you, but over to the side, there's a little <laughs> bit of darkness, yeah. and you're not quite sure what's going on no. there. And every um, time you look across, it disappears. And yeah, like, and that's just human nature. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, no, I, I, incredible. Oh, I look forward to that. Any idea when that's going to be on? Um, I think it probably won't be out until Christmas time. There's a huge amount of visual effects to do on it. You know, it's like insane. So, it'll be great though. 
Every year now, you've got to deliver us a Christmas show. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> well, no pressure. No, we're holding you to that. Right? <laughs> so, just a couple of quick questions to finish yeah. off, am I? Yeah. What have you seen recently, films, TV series, that's impressed you? Gosh, I love Jojo Rabbit. I thought it was a sensational piece of work. I thought it was tonally so spot on and so easily could have just trod over the line into something kind of really silly. He got the tone Um, right. But wow, I thought that was a really clever piece of work. I loved A Marriage Story um, recently. I loved the filmmaking of The Joker. I didn't like the film. Can I ask you a question on Mm. that? There's a scene... Again, when we did a piece on it, there's that scene where he's dancing down the stairs. He's in full costume. Mm. The music they're playing is Gary Glitter's Rock mm. and Roll Part 2. And we said in our, in our review, that is artistically brilliant, mm. morally dubious. Mm. Yeah. But it just conjures up mm. that character. It's mm. everything you want of that character is in that scene with that music. And with every question that I have about that film also in that scene, yeah. which is, does the world need it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's no, fair. Yeah. Well, yeah, is any yeah, of it yeah. real? Yeah. Or is it just in his we'll, head? We'll find out in the sequel, Neil. No, 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 But also, I, you know, television-wise, I loved Succession. Have you seen Succession? I couldn't get... I struggled with it. I couldn't really? get into it. It's really? the one... Normally, I, I like those sort of shows, yeah. and the people behind that, they made uh, one of my favourite films of the last 10 years, The Big Short. Mm. I don't know. There's just something about it. Every character is repulsive. Mm. I just couldn't connect mm. with it. And I don't, you know, mm, yeah, I, 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 and I like shows like, I know Billions is more soap opera-ish, but things like that. Veep is another one where every character really is repellent. But I connected with mm. Veep in a way that I, 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 I struggle. And maybe I, it's me. I'm going to give it, go back and give it another go. What did you think of Little Women? I'm ashamed to say I've only seen half of it. So I, I, I don't really feel like I'm no. in a position to... Because I thought... She nicked your style of camera work for this scene with her dancing on the veranda outside the... Um... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've seen that before. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. I'd love to think that. I, I'm sure that's not true. But I, I think um, just hearing her talk about it and seeing half of it, I love and I'm really interested to kind of watch the whole thing and really interrogate the film um, because I love the way that she is very specific in period, and yet it still feels contemporary. Um, So I have two projects at the moment that are period pieces, and it really interests me how you can contemporarise a period piece. I'm not, you know, I've done them before for the BBC, period pieces that in the end feel a little nostalgic, and I'm not really interested in doing that anymore. But I am really interested in using period if it feels like we can say something about our contemporary world. The first half of that I thought was brilliant, really interesting. And I think it's partly to do with how she worked with the actors. Mm. It's partly allowing the actors... You know, the, the challenge with period drama is, is to try to make the actors feel like they haven't got broomsticks up their asses. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is what happens. It's a weird thing that happens. You know, actors put on these costumes yeah. and then suddenly they... You sort of think, well, why are you walking like that? Yeah. You know, why have you suddenly changed how you you walk, you know, and, and how you talk? Uh, it's weird. It's a weird thing that happens. And so I did one period drama where I was working with these period actors and I gave them EastEnders scripts and we were rehearsing with these EastEnders scripts to try and loosen it all up a bit, you know, and try different things with it, you know, and what, what Greta Goey did in that is to take the corsets off 
Yes. The Little Women. So okay. they, the, they clothes are, the clothes yeah. are fun. I, I yeah. know I, uh, I said no, this I in our review. Yet, so. I thought the clothing was fantastic. Yeah, it was they just felt relaxed. But that's partly to do with the clothing. Mm-hmm. It's partly to do with, with whoever made the decisions really matter. But, you know, the decision to not corset them, yes. to mm-hmm. let them be their bodies, yeah. the shape that they were, and cut the costumes for that. And everybody else around them were corseted. Yeah. yeah. So that the 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 the, 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 the women it had a freedom yeah. to it, you yes. know, yeah. that enabled this kind of wonderful reality to it. Yeah, yeah. it is on my list to watch. Isn't yeah, it? Just, again, there's so much stuff out there. Oh man, trying to yeah, yeah. trying to track it. All I mean, I, I've got to say, Parasite. Oh, oh yes, oh, oh, seen no. it twice. Oh. Absolutely. Now, for me, look, you know, if you put Parasite and 1917 on the same page, it's if Parasite, in terms of Everything about it is, and, and also, I don't know if you've read about the house and the making yeah, of the house. Yeah, yeah, uh, unbelievable! Just such brilliant direction, and the and the stairs, the, the stairs, stairs they have to go down, and go down, down, and that black down, hole that you sort down, of feel like is down, is like down. a magnet that sucks them yes. into that black hole. I mean, and, it's and just, then when they're down on the ground level, their house is below that, and yeah. you think, oh no, yeah, it's a just a fantastic, brilliant piece of work. Yeah. I'm okay. still it's processing it. I'm still goes, processing yeah. There's still yeah. things that pop into my mind and go, oh, I, I would yeah. have been with you watching it, but I was working in the hospital. Comes out, <laughs> comes out tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and see it. Yeah, watch it on the big screen. Yeah, yeah. no, oh, definitely. Yeah. There's so screen. much. I mean, I want to see that Tom Hanks film, Beautiful Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. an interesting film. Yeah. Tomorrow. Mm. You watching. weren't that impressed? Um, I think he's incredible in it. I mean, he, there are not very many actors who could have pulled off that part and not made it feel a little... little um, Schmaltzy? Dodgy. Okay. Um, oh, right. Okay. Him and Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether, it, I don't know in the end whether the film is anything more than Be Nice to Kids. Haven't seen it yet. <laughs> no, no, again. Yes. I mean, the the film that's really impressed me so far this year is Bombshell. I thought Bombshell. I haven't was seen Bombshell. Uh, because it's a really important subject. And I followed a lot of the story when it was going on. But they're not nice people. And and that, to me, give me the hook to follow it. You know, sort of, yes, the Margot Robbie character is not real, but the rest of them are. And and Charlie's Tehran, I mean, she, the makeup was incredible to make her look like Megan yeah. Kelly. Yeah. Yeah, she does look, all the, all the images, stills I've seen, do look amazing, yeah. Yeah, so so that, that one for me. Final question for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're nearly there. <laughs> it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Um, so I want to go right back to the beginning of your career. So before university. Now, you spent time working on ranches and farms in America and Zimbabwe. Have you any plans to use those experiences in future projects? I use them every day, mate. Yeah? Okay. Wow. Yeah. You know, trying, to, trying to make a film is like rustling cattle most of the time. <laughs> 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 or <clears throat> my dad was a cowboy, really. I used to earn my money when I was a sort of 14, 15, 16-year-old breaking in bulls. So you'd get these kind of bulls and you'd have to uh, put a halter on them and they'd kick like crazy. It's like kind of breaking in a horse, basically. Um, and you'd just have to hold the ground and hold them and try and break them so that, you know, when you then sold them, because they were, they were pedigree cows that were, had some value to them, you would then be able to kind of walk them around the auction ring 
And so ah. my job was to break, break them to the point where you could walk them around. I, I, look, I, no, I mean, you know, the serious point, I, I, I love actors. I, I, love, they, I love working with actors. And uh, the great thing about coming from a theatre background is that I'm not afraid of actors. A lot of directors are. A lot of directors are very technical. And, they, and, and these days, you know, with all the you know, complexity of what we, what we do, it's very easy to hide behind the technical. But I am always on the floor with the actors. I'm always right next to the camera and working with actors. They are, at the end of the day, if you have all the pyrotechnics in the world and you have all the visual effects and the amazing backgrounds and the worlds that we create, if you do not have a great performance in the center of your frame, you'll lose your audience. And the only way to get that performance with an actor is to be with them and to make them feel safe. And a lot of the job of a director is, and we talked about this when I did the thing in the Stroud, is to create a safe space mm. whereby everybody on set can give of their best and not risk being undermined, humiliated, laughed at. Mm. None of us give of our best if we're frightened. Yeah. We yeah. contract. Confidence, safety allows people to expand and to dare. And if that's one thing I want from my team of people that I work with, whether it's the actors, whether it's the, the camera team or the props team or the makeup or whatever it is, dare. Don't be obedient to me. Dare to take my idea and make it better and bigger and run with it. And so I, I love actors and, and I want them to give more than they ever thought that they could. I'm their parachute. I need them to jump. And I think if they trust me to give them a soft landing as their parachute, they will jump. Mm -hmm. But if you create an atmosphere of fear, they won't. Yeah. They will never do. So to go back to the, yeah. the, the cattle, cattle breeding thing is, you know, you, you, you sometimes have to wrestle with the whole machinery of making a film every single day to make it happen. And then you have to get on the floor and you have to let all of that go and create a, a place which is a joy for everybody to be in. Um, and, and to do their best and that's that's difficult and it and it shows in your work you know you've shepherded some great series through to us and some great films yeah. and we look forward to more in the future thank you very much Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure and if the opportunity arises we'd like to report on the progress of home for you yeah. Uh, yeah as we believe it's a very important project great well thank you so much look i'm here for you guys and you know please look if there's one thing that i want to try and do it's to sort of demystify what i do what filmmaking is and to kind of you know break down these barriers it is a complicated thing it's a difficult industry to get into with home part of the dna of home is to bring in people who are not in the industry who want to get into the industry who don't necessarily have access to it to come on board and to learn and to to be you know to be great filmmakers in their own right and so you know if this is part of that if we can ferment something between us that 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 does that let's do it absolutely we don't have a mission statement, but if we did have one, it'd be that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. It's yours. Thank you very much, Mark. Right? Great Cheers. pleasure. Thank you very Great much. Pleasure. Fantastic. Incredible. Mark, who is a very busy guy, spared us one hour to talk to us. We spent much longer than that. I think it was around three hours uh, chatting away with him. A great experience and a wonderful man. Thank you, Mark.
So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Okay, guys, time to watch some movies for the end of month reviews, which this month focuses on movies which were released in April in years gone by. So it only remains for us to say... I bet Neil's something horrendous lined up for his choice of April movie, and he'll do that just to spite me. Yes, Jeff, you'll hate it. And I got to pick a movie that has no Vin, Mel or Gerard in it. So maybe lockdown has some good points. And to everyone else in isolation... Thanks for listening and stay safe. This episode is dedicated to all the organisations and volunteers who are doing what they can to end the scourge of homelessness. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website at theflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.